When someone says patient and family-centered care, what springs to mind? I tried out a stream of consciousness or word association, and here's what went through my head. Listening to patients and families. Delivering bad news. The patient is in the room. Patient stories. Nothing about me without me. Shared decision-making. Partnering with patients. Apologies. Disclosure. Transparency. Advisory councils. Names of people went through my head when I thought about patient activists. Linda Kenny, Sorrell King, Dale Ann Michalizzi, Dan Ford, Sue Sheridan, Eileen Karina, Jennifer Dingman. Organizations, Pulse, MITS, NPSF, Institute for Family-Centered Care, CAPS, and so many more important people and groups. If we are having a discussion about a possibly watershed meeting in Orlando, Florida last week, it's because of the hard work of people and groups I mention and many, many others that I have not mentioned over many years, and not just in the U.S., but globally. We salute every patient activist and leader who is changing the conversation and changing the very concept of changing health care on this edition of WIHI. And welcome to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, offered every other week and also for your convenience as a downloadable file via IHI.org and also on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. And it's my sincere privilege to help all of us wrap our arms and minds around the sadness, the stories, and the strategizing that signified the gathering of some 60 patient activist leaders at IHI's National Forum last week. So um, again, it's WIHI. I'm Madge Kaplan, and I'm uh, proud now to introduce my guests. And more detailed bios are on the WIHI web pages. But in brief, Barbara Balick is senior faculty at IHI and the principal of Common Fire Consulting. Many us, many of us worked with her when she was a senior leader at Alina uh, Hospitals and Clinics. She's working hard on leadership issues and ensuring that patients uh, and and family experience is central to all thinking and planning with improvement and safety. Welcome, Barbara. Thank you, Madge. Great. Glad to be here. Terrific. Bill Thatcher is Executive Director of the Cautious Patient Foundation, and his vision and those of his colleagues ensured that patient activist leaders got to the forum this year. Welcome, Bill. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Terrific. Tricia Pill is a pediatrician, medical writer, and patient activist in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Among other things, her story is a reminder that the identity of patient is one we all share, no matter our profession, including being a medical professional. Welcome, Tricia. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks, Matt. Okay, great. And rounding out our group today with Charles McLean, he's the founder and, in his words, chief committed listener and donor advocate for philanthropynow.com. He's also the former director of medical education for the American College of Emergency Physicians. So, Charles, are you there? Good morning, Madge, and good morning, fellow patient advocates, all doing better. 
Okay, great. And um, right off the bat, I'd like to thank uh, Charles, Linda Kenny, Trisha Pill, and Alan Olison for allowing me to include some of their photos with some of my own. And a big tribute uh, is due Regina Holiday for the work of art she created uh, at the summit. You saw some of those uh, photos of her paintings, um, her painting, I should say, as it unfolded at the summit and the forum. And we'll be sure to be showing you those photos again. So we're going to get started. Uh, a reminder. If you've got any technical issues whatsoever, uh, if you're on the computer, chat those in to Jesse McCall. So let's get started. I want to first turn to Barbara Balick and Bill Thatcher, and I'd like each of them, in their own words, to describe the vision that was at work here in imagining a first-of-its-kind summit of dozens of groups that have been working on reducing medical errors and building a more patient-centered healthcare system. Barbara, let me start with you. Um, the I, I I think partly what was on display, as it were, at the forum was just the sheer breadth and depth and growth of the numbers of groups and people who have gotten downright uh, sophisticated and practically veteran at, at much of the work. Um, tell me what the vision was in terms of your involvement in wanting to push this along. Thanks, Matt. Well, from the standpoint of, of working with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement on what this summit might look like, I would first and foremost give all due credit to Linda Kenny, uh, Sue Sheridan, Bill, and others for their thoughts of what happens when people come together who have their own individual and small group activities, as many of our activists do, and what happens if they come together and really harness that energy. So I would have to say from IHI's standpoint, it was very much recognizing the organic and emergent properties of what was going on, that this was a source of learning and discovery. And IHI's role in this, I think, was primarily aiding as a convener and perhaps as a catalytic agent to bring folks together, to help folks be together and to explore what the possibilities are. So it was really a truly opportunistic, wonderful situation um, where we were able to bring very, be together with very talented people who could set aside perhaps their own individual interests and build on those to come together in a larger group to say what's the realm of possibility if we start harnessing more and more of the larger voices of people represented in that group. And certainly, and I know we'll talk about this more a bit later, what that voice, those voices meant in a forum that involved almost 6,000 people in influencing very key uh, sessions throughout the forum. You, you pointed out very appropriately, Marge, we stand on the shoulders of organizations and people who have been working on this in many, many ways over many years. So we give all due credit to what has come before, and by standing on other shoulders, we get to accelerate the work. Absolutely. Thanks, Barbara Balick. Bill Thatcher, uh, in your role at Cautious Patient Foundation, I guess you could be said to be a true uh, catalytic converter here uh, for, for what happened. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I suspect uh, the engines are still firing, uh, definitely. So uh, describe how, tell, first explain to us what Cautious Patient Foundation is and how you came to play such a role in uh, essentially underwriting uh, folks so that they could come to the summit and come to the forum? Well, Cautious Patient Foundation is um, an organization that um, was started uh, several years ago by uh, Dr. Carolyn Oliver, 
who's both a medical doctor and a lawyer, and she started the, the work that we're doing uh, out of a passion and a commitment to seeing uh, patients and their experience through the healthcare system um, improved. And she saw that primarily as not by trying to get the ear of the doctor so much as it was about um, enabling patients to understand the challenges that they face when they enter into this experience as patient um, and to give them tools that would help them become more effective uh, in traversing that um, sometimes first time experience of being a patient, uh, particularly in going into the hospital. And uh, that gradually developed and in, in at the time of patient safety early on when people were thinking you know, patient safety is like not letting them slip on a wet floor in the hospital and see emerging to the place where today it's it's so much more than that. And, um, and it's geared to having uh, the patient be a part of the, the team um, that is working to see them improve. So um, we came into this discussion, I, I met Linda Kinney uh, uh, this spring. She mentioned to me that there was talk going on about bringing uh, a, a group of patient activists, at, advocates, whatever term you want to use, but patients uh, was the emphasis, uh, together to talk about um, what might be done collectively. And, and when she mentioned that, I said, well, count us in. I mean, keep us in the loop. We would definitely be interested in, in doing whatever we could to encourage that happening uh, because while many of us are familiar with the kinds of statistics that compel our engagement, uh, not just our individual experiences, but the fact that the 100,000 people die every year in hospitals due to medical errors, another almost 100,000 die from hospital-acquired infections. Um, these numbers are staggering in, in at one level, and they're mind-numbing in another way, because if we had jumbo jets going down every couple of days, people would be climbing all over, not only our legislators, but the, the systems uh, supervisors as well to, to come to uh, change that problem. Um, but because it's so diffuse, diffuse across the country, we don't see the numbers uh, with such a stark kind of impact. So I think from our perspective, we believe that while there's much good work being done locally at the grassroots level in, in patient advocate work, um, it's happening one by one by one with patients. There is not uh, a sense of a, a uh, national discussion, not only about you know the, the healthcare legislation, but how can we actually um, have a, a conversation in this country to address the, the issues and, and and uh, problems that demand urgency in, in terms of coming up with solutions. Bill, thanks. Uh, that's Bill Thatcher. This is WIHI. We're talking about the patient activists following up on a summit in Orlando last week at IHI's National Forum. And we're going to get into kind of what w was some of the brainstorming that went on at that meeting about what it would mean once everybody was in the room uh, to actually sort of move an agenda forward uh, that would combine uh, so many of the interests and uh, agendas and creativity. Tricia Pill in Pittsburgh. Um, 
I, I hope I'm not going out on a limb when I say becoming a pediatrician for you, I suspect, didn't include studying to become a patient activist leader. Um, no, we didn't have that in medical school. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but you're learning now. Um, and uh, I want to also just acknowledge uh, people have very important and valuable stories. Tricia and Charles both are very good sports in uh, trying to sort of distill, I think, uh, what were indeed long journeys for them um, and have been long journeys for many of the people at the summit uh, to sort of uh, boil it down so we can at least uh, get the the shape of it uh, for today. Um, But Tricia, tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be a patient activist leader. Um, well, I guess I'd say my, my journey to the, the summit and the forum last week uh, really began a little more than five years ago. Um, back at that time, I was a pediatrician, and I was happily ensconced in suburban private practice. I worked in the same community and alongside many of the same colleagues that I had trained with and under during my residency. Um, I was also a working mom um, of two young children and a wife, and I had a third baby on the way. And I was 33 years old and healthy. I had two uncomplicated pregnancy and deliveries under my belt, and I really considered myself your uh, uber-informed patient. Um, And then on October 1st, 2005, with the delivery of my son, my world came crashing down. Um, There were a series of medical errors that occurred at his delivery that snowballed into a catastrophe that nearly cost us both our lives. Um, in a nutshell, um, we started with a misdiagnosis of a false labor, followed by a precipitous delivery in the hallway of the hospital, followed by mismanagement of a postpartum hemorrhage hours later, followed by undiagnosed and untreated shock, followed by an, inappropriate, an inappropriate discharge of my ill newborn, and ending with his emergency room resuscitation and readmission five hours later for jaundice and dehydration and shock. Um, But, you know, even worse than that entire event itself was the response I got afterwards from the hospital and the medical community as I searched for answers and asked, you know, how how did this happen? What happened? Why did this happen? My faith was shattered. Everything I thought I knew and believed about medicine, this whole profession to which I had basically devoted a lifetime of training and practice, and even my very identity as a physician was destroyed. So it was an event that forever changed me and and really changed my life, and it opened my eyes to this uh, darker side of medicine that beforehand, even though I was a physician working in that system, I I really barely knew existed. I learned firsthand that medical errors can happen at any time and to anyone, even doctors. And I also experienced the wall of silence, the denial, the refusal of an apology, and the circling of the wagons that really only add insult to injury for patients and families whose lives have been affected by medical error, as mine was. And I felt abandoned and betrayed by my own profession and struggled with feelings of disbelief, anger, and shame that something like this could have happened to me, a physician, you know, I considered one of their own. Um, In April of this year, after nearly two years' worth of serial rejection letters from pretty much every major medical publication in the country, I published my story in the online medical journal Pulse. 
and within three days, my narrative broke the record for number of viewer oh. hits and reader comments to any article wow. in the journal's history. Yeah. And it, was at, it really wasn't until that point, I think I finally began to realize that maybe I wasn't alone in my experience, and maybe I wasn't crazy either. Uh, and judging from the reader comments, I also began to sense that there was an enormous potential power and energy um, from the feedback from patients and providers, too, um, who saw the same problems in their own healthcare organizations that I had experienced and written about in mine. And, um, you know, most importantly, they, they really expressed a desire and a, and a determination to fix them. So, you know, I've been on both sides of the patient care experience, and I've seen the very best and the very worst of medicine. And even though I, I know that no one sets out to cause harm to patients, and I, I've been very privileged um, as a physician to be a part of the modern medical era, improving and sometimes even saving the lives of my patients. Um, but I've also learned that despite the best of our intention, intentions, and no matter how informed or educated or important I thought I was, there's really no such thing as immunity from medical error. That's kind of how Wow. Okay. Thank you so much, Tricia. That's Tricia Pill. And um, we're going to, you know, want to speak to Charles and sort of get a, a brief background from him. And then we'll talk about with all of you sort of what, what came up as possibilities uh, in the discussion. And then we'll bring everybody else in on that uh, who's joined us today. Charles McLean, uh, thanks for your patience in getting on board this call today. I don't know if that was harder than getting to Orlando, but uh, we're glad you, you did both. Um, you have a lot of different interests uh, when anyone reads your bio as, a, as we've got it on the website right now. How did or has patient-centered care come to figure among them? Well, given the uh, most important is hearing the questions of the callers, I, what I've tried to do is uh, look at a tweet. If I were tweeting the conference, I would say, and plus the 13 interviews I did with patients before we went to Orlando, the tweet would be, when patients receive competent, timely, affordable, high-touch care, they feel better and are less likely to demand unnecessary high-tech care, and that wellness is a shared responsibility. Uh, more recently, my, my interest got piqued when my primary care physician of 10 years told me that he couldn't afford to keep me as a Medicare patient. It took three months to find a new provider and uh, I'm glad that I did. Then my health insurer reduced their coverage for integrated health care options like acupuncture, chiropractic, naturopathic. I, I emailed the CEO, never got a response, and I changed insurers. And in terms of high-quality care, I recently witnessed firsthand what excellent end-of-life care looks like for my mom at age 93 before she passed at the Grand Care Nursing Home in Green Bay. Caring was more than just a word in a marketing brochure there. And she, she had a good death because caregivers recognized that they couldn't cure her Alzheimer's, but they could provide a healing environment and a, and a really good passage. Mm -hmm. um, yep. I've, I've been noodling on what were some of the high points of the, of yes. the summit. Yes. Be a point to yes, go, some of those? go right ahead, Charles. Yep. We're showing There's a phrase in Texas, where's the juice and is it worth the squeeze? And this was <laughs> definitely a juicy conference, and some of the, uh, the takeaways are great value. I came away with a sense that every patient activist 
we all need to get training and ongoing coaching for how to function as an effective, uh, courageous advocate. Uh, and that we need to get act, at this appointed to every regulatory body, legislative committee, uh, rate-setting panel. And that's where the decisions are being made. And as activists, I believe we have to earn our spurs. Uh, and that just being a passionate storyteller, amateur, isn't enough. We really have to know uh, and be prepared to discuss options and consequences. A second takeaway was that as Americans, about a third of us use complementary care. Two-thirds don't tell our primary care physician, and many pay out of pocket. And I believe it's time that we look more closely at uh, providing patients more choice and more dollars to use a wider range of options. The other humbling piece was recognizing that maybe only 20% of our health, my health, is attributable to what's done by doctors, nurses, hospitals, and technology, and that 80% is due to my personal choices, nutrition, exercise, the first five years of life, and that having more resources devoted to funding that 80% is what's pretty important. Okay. Thank you, Charles. Those are very, very interesting. And I think those are sort of some of the topics uh, on the discussion, uh, under discussion. And I think they reflect also the real uh, range of things, I think, going on, not only for the kinds of experiences people have gone through, but the routes people want to take. Uh, and I think, you know, everything to, you know, from transparency and disclosure and apology and what is appropriate response when unfortunate things occur uh, to uh, becoming much more activated further upstream in the process so that you're more prepared uh, for uh, the system itself as well as the, uh, many people were there at the summit from patient advisory councils and I think there's several uh, people many people on, on the program today from that world as well so we're discussing the patient activists I do want to remind everybody that this group uh, that this loosely configured group at this point that I think uh, maybe feels fairly sticky with one another. Um, you, they do have a Facebook page at this point uh, that they're using at least to sort of keep everybody corralled for a while, and anyone is welcome to view that and join that and uh, share photos, comments, and be part of a discussion, and uh, Jesse McCall just threw that into the chat. If anybody is just joining by phone today, I do want to remind you, if, you don't, if you're not part of the visuals here, you can uh, send us an email to info at IHI.org and we'll make sure you get everything. All right, I want to go back now and we'll maybe sort of make the rounds one more time and then we'll open things up. So back to you, Barbara. Talk a little bit about the flavor of uh, when people, there was a, a quick photo in there of uh, another one of these big sheets of paper where people were brainstorming what they would like to see. What would be the changes? How will we know the improvement is a change? Those kinds of uh, questions were on the table. Talk about what you were in a group you maybe wandered around a bit what's on the table here what are people trying to figure out well I think as is someone earlier described it's really about changing the conversation and what I heard among all of the groups that, that were in those small group discussions was really changing the nature of the conversation we're st still sorting through all the notes and all the lists and and the steering group that, that came together to help organize this is going to sort through this in advance 
some particular ideas as far as next steps. I think you could group them under one large heading, and I think really uh, Charles did speak to that, which is uh, we need to make uh, the safety and the reliability and the partnership aspects of care a public health issue. So similar to smoking, similar to safety as far as use of seatbelts, it needs to be on the same level. I think uh, also Bill mentioned the, no, the, the equivalent of lives lost or, or harm that occurs in a year. So one of the consistent themes that I heard from people was this: the, our concerns need to be in the, the framework of a public health issue in the U.S. So really, how would we change the conversation if we took that mindset rather than just solely individual by individual? The other examples I heard really ranged on four, what I would describe as four different levels. One is the personal level. As, as Charles mentioned, what do I need to do to promote my own health and to be an activist in my care, with my caregivers? And he certainly gave some great examples of that. So how am I an activist in caring for myself and in my relationships with my caregivers? Second is if I'm involved in a clinic or in a hospital setting, how can be, I be an activist in that setting, influencing what happens beyond my own particular uh, approach to care? And certainly many uh, clinics particularly are uh, embarking on becoming a patient-centered medical home. Without activists uh, being partners with them, they're truly not going to accomplish that. The third is that as an organizational level, we had many people who are very active either in their own organization in partnership with hospitals, clinics, health systems, uh, uh, third-party payers, but how to influence at that level. And we had some very good examples of things underway, um, some sadly taking a long time, as Trisha's story shows us. And then finally, what about at the, that bigger policy level? So as someone mentioned, now what about influencing poly, policymakers in regulatory, in what's paid for, in how do we pay for value, not volume? So I was hearing uh, suggestions at all four of those levels. Mm -hmm. Very, very interesting. And, and, an example, yeah. um, just one last example, is one of the participants, Martha Hayward, who is a patient of family advisor at the Dana-Farber Institute and also heads of the Partnership for Healthcare Excellence uh, based in Boston. Just this uh, Tuesday um, was the patient activist who was speaking to a group that included Secretary of Health and Human Services, Sibelius and Don Berwick, whom many of us know is now the Director for Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services, about what does uh, personal and public engagement with, uh, with those uh, who are, um, we are committed to serve, what does that look like? So there's all levels of influence going on. Absolutely. Well, it's sort of like a, thanks Barbara, it's, like, it's sort of an interesting uh, migration and uh, set loose maybe on all these different fronts and then hopefully uh, perhaps coming together in a framed way that people can figure out where they can plug in. Bill, just kind of um, quickly and um, then I think we're going to open things up for questions and comments. 
did this all pretty much live up to what you were imagining? Uh, it, you know, so much planning goes in, and uh, hats off all the all the way to Jenna Ward, who I know is probably dialed in here somewhere uh, for all her work on this. Um, but uh, did did it? Did you sort of? Did we sort of move something forward? And would would either of you or any of you on the uh, who've joined us today, uh, Tricia, uh, Charles, and we'll ask listeners think of this as any kind of a tipping point? Um, well, at least from my perspective, and yay to Jenna for all of her work that she put in in terms of um, resourcing this event administratively. It was phenomenal. Um, I would say that we came in, that is the Crush's Patient Group came in with fairly uh, low expectations, feeling like just gathering a group of people um, involved in grassroots um, advocacy and activism in, in, for patients would be uh, a, a, a tremendous um, event um, just to have that connection. And, and we've seen even in the last week following the forum, uh, just I've been getting about 12 to 15 emails a day from the, that small group of participants um, talking about a variety of things. So that outcome has, has um, con- you know, been impressive in, in and of itself, and we're trying to find the, the best ways to, to organize that so that uh, it can be a, hel- uh, a helpful dialogue for everyone. But we didn't have feeling like this is one sort of a first of its kind in, in the sense that it was a, 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 an attempt to reach out nationally and identify people um, to come together um, to meet and, and discuss these issues. Um, second, it was a small group in the sense of, of, you know, there were like more than twice as many people who applied for uh, this event um, as were invited to participate, uh, which means there's, you know, we know at least that there are twice as many of us that, that wanted to be present and, and made the effort and applied to be one of the people chosen. So uh, this group is not the only group. It hopefully will be a growing group. Um, and, um, you know, in America, we're very much attuned to wanting to know the bottom line or what the outcome <laughs> is. And, um, What's going to happen that's next? That's right. That's right. And, and so... There's, there. I believe that there's value in the simple fact that we were able to gather and speak to one another, okay, uh, and thank- begin to form a collective. All right. Well, thank you. A collective, and uh, uh, hope you're enjoying uh, some of the photos. Those of you who are joined uh, with us on the computer, and again, if you joined us by phone only, we'll be happy to send you the slides from today's program. Which, by the way, when you log off on the computer, you can download all the slides. All right. I'm just going to cheat out of out of a few more minutes before we go to chat, and Jesse will explain that. Trisha, you uh, did a lot of lovely uh, preparation. I know Charles did uh, some preparation as well. Uh, I, I I want to just for very quickly in the next couple minutes, uh, Tricia, start with you. Just give us a flavor of what it was like to, you know, the summit was one day, one half of a day, uh, et cetera, and then everybody went and sort of spread out uh, into (laughs) among 6,000 people at a forum over the next three days, uh, all kinds of sessions. What was it like for you, Tricia, and what do you think happened with you uh, and and your colleagues kind of uh, moving in and out of uh, those sessions? 
Uh, at the at the forum. You yes, mean? yes. Um, yeah, I mean, you're right. The actual summit lasted just one morning, and then we were kind of turned loose to join the six thousand other participants in the greater forum. And at first, I thought, you know, you'd think sixty people spread out among six thousand would be spread pretty thin, but <laughs> not not these sixty. You know, it <laughs> seemed like everywhere I went and every session I attended, I I kept running into my fellow <laughs> activists. You know, whether it was there was a session discussing the use of an IHI global trigger tool. Um, there a session on building programs to support healthcare providers involved in a medical error or identifying approaches to engage patient and family advisors. You know, the, the patient activists, we, we were all there, and we were very active, you know, asking lots of questions and sharing their thoughts and ideas. Um, and to their credit, you know, many of the session speakers went out of their way to include us in the presence in the presentations too, and allowed us opportunities to explain to the larger audience, you know, how and why we were at this forum. Um, I remember one particular um, story. There was one session on the respectful crisis management of serious clinical events. There was one South Carolina patient activist who described the difficulty she faced trying to get an independent autopsy for a family member who had died from a medical error, and another participant stood up and said, no, no, you know, that can't be because there, there's a state law that hospitals have to notify coroners and medical examiners if a patient dies within 24 hours of admission. And then to which our activists proudly replied, thank you, I wrote that law. <laughs> and, and that's when I realized yeah. that, you know, while inviting patient advocates to the forum this year definitely changed much of the dialogue at the sessions, the dialogue had actually already been changed before we even arrived. Um, and I, I'd just like to finish by saying there was a Jim Conway, who who led that session, you know, had closed his uh, closed by acknowledging the number of patient activists uh, of us that were there in attendance, and he said, "It appears that the bullet train for patient and family engagement has left the station, and you're either on the train, under the train, or standing at the platform hoping for another train. But regardless, the train's left, and we're on our way." Mm. Wow, well said. And thank you, Tricia, for those reflections. Uh, I guess, Charles, uh, quickly from you as well, and then we're going to open it up. I promise everyone. Uh, what, what happened uh, when you sort of moved into to some of the regular forum sessions? One thing of great value was the recognition that as a responsible patient, I need to go online to reliable medical sites before I go to see my primary care provider to bring my list of conditions, concerns, questions, and don't leave until I get the questions answered in everyday language. Secondly, there's a lot of talk about patient rights, but imagine that we had a bill of patients' rights and responsibilities that intersected with the rights and responsibilities of the providers. What if we developed a scenario for that preferred future where the rights and responsibilities of both groups came together. And if folks interested in pursuing that, I'd be very interested in, in, in being in touch with them. Uh, lastly is that I have a choice every time I go in the voting booth, and that is to vote for legislators who take a stand for affordable, available, effective health care for every American, and that it's a human right and a moral responsibility and what we learned from our overseas colleagues is that it takes political will and ethics and equity and can't be power, profit, and a lobbyist game. 
Okay. All right. Thank you very much, uh, Charles. Okay. So um, we've uh, just tried to set the table, give you a feel for all of this. All right. Jesse's going to remind everybody how you can chat in. A few people have started already. Go ahead. Thanks, Matt. So in the bottom right-hand corner of your screen, you'll find the chat room, and we've had a bit of conversation here so far. Just remind you to send your messages to all participants when you are sending your chat. That way, uh, everyone that's on our program today can see your question, and we can bring it up to uh, imagine our guests. All right. Sounds good. You see anything you like there, Jesse, right away? Um, Jesse's often good at sort of uh, spotting something there. What about this one? From D. Lewis. Do you see that one? I do. So D. Lewis writes in, It'd be nice to have a focus group of just patients with no background of health care participating in the national forum. Activists and patients can come together discussing their desire of change in their everyday health care settings, also discussing the myths that can paralyze a patient from being their own activist in today's world. Um, so kind of blurring the lines between a, a fresh patient activist and a, and a seasoned patient activist. What does it take, I guess, to become uh, an informed patient activist? Right, exactly. That's a good question. And I, my understanding was that that came up a lot uh, in the, at the summit as well as uh, in the larger forum area, which is sort of people gaining skills. Uh, it's... it's um, very powerful and tremendous uh, contribution when people hear the stories and know you know the experiences and yet people want to also be effective so uh, go ahead folks uh, you know feel free to chat in and ask questions um, maybe uh, Barbara you might pick up on that issue uh, it sounds to me like a number of people uh, want to be sure that somehow that the stories are there but that there's action and that there's a way to sort of make make something effective use of stories? Well, I think it was Charles that said how to be an effective activist, whatever our role is, whether we come solely as a, a patient consumer or if I'm a healthcare provider um, or as in Trisha's case, wearing both hats, um, having a compelling story is where we start. And uh, my good colleague, Martha Hayward, describes that as how do you take your story and make it more accessible, a more universal story for others to hear? And uh, I would complement that with also how do we as providers, I'm a nurse, how do I as a provider make sure that I'm able to hear and uh, work in partnership with patients and families to act on that story, to act on that information at whatever level, whether it's an individual level or an organizational level. So some of the conversation was about how to develop the skills. Eileen Karina is great at um, one of her suggestions is I want to help patient activists be able to, as Charles mentioned, verbally tweet their story in 30 to 40, uh, to 60 seconds so that others can hear it and be moved to action by it. So that was certainly a key uh, essential step that came out of it. And for organizations that have tapped into the wealth of resources of patient partners in advisor roles, uh, Spectrum Health in Michigan is a great example. They have almost 100 patient and family advisors, and part of what they work on are mutual skills for both patient who will be advisors and activists in their setting and skills for those providers and administrators who are working with them. 
Thanks, Barbara. Tricia, I'm curious. Um, you you uh, also um, have been on this journey of sort of building skills, as well as uh, very much wanting to challenge and sort of get providers on board. Uh, can you talk a little bit about this? I know you're very very uh, impassioned about the open school and reaching uh, health professionals. Uh, where where does this fit in uh, to the agenda right now? Yeah, I, I know that, um, you know, engaging providers has historically been and, and continues to be a, a big challenge um, in, in this effort. Um, there, there are definitely physician superheroes out there, like, you know, Don Berwick and uh, Atul Gawande and the like. You know, many, they were at, many of them, you know, who were at the forum. But I think in the larger medical community, there's still a great deal of inertia and, and frankly, apathy. Um, I... I sense that many of my physician colleagues are disillusioned with our healthcare system in general. I mean, they feel like rats on a treadmill. They're reluctant to speak up even when they see serious problems because they're afraid, you know, either that their concerns will fall on deaf ears or sometimes uh, retaliation, even, you know, rightfully so, these fears. And they've heard a lot of, you know, malpractice horror stories and and they're disengaged um, from patient safety and quality improvements efforts, you know, viewing them sometimes as externally imposed bureaucratic hassles or, you know, thinly disguised witch hunts. Uh, And I I hear that, and and I get that, and and all I can say is, you know, I don't think it has to be that way. I don't think there's an easy answer, but, you know, as you were saying, I I definitely feel that provider education, just as much as patient education has has got to be part of the answer. And um, I'm thrilled that we have something like the IHI Open School program um, where, you know, I'm a chapter leader and faculty advisor in that program, and that's an interprofessional educational community that teaches patient safety and quality improvement skills to health profession students, which are the next generation. And it's it's that kind of, you know, roll up your sleeves, nose to the grindstone effort um, to teach um, students that that's going to surely but surely change the culture of medicine away from that traditional hierarchical, siloed, and, you know, power-based structure to one that's more respectful and team-oriented and and patient-centered. Thanks, uh, Tricia Pill. Um, I'm taking a peek at some of the... the chat questions here. One has to do with uh, some concerns that somebody's raising, this person from Canada. How do we avoid tokenization? Um, I imagine there's a real range of what's going on with the patient advisory councils, for example, and uh, some really uh, kind of deeply uh, engaged uh, with the institutions and perhaps uh, some still uh, maybe treated a little more at arm's length. Um, I don't, I'm not sure who's the best person to answer that, if that's Bill or Barbara, in terms of sort of knowledge of that, but I, I, can, I sense in some of the comments here fears uh, that people will get very busy and ramp up for things, and, and yet they're, they're still kind of auxiliary. Who wants to take that one? Barbara? Well, I'm glad to take a stab at it, and yeah. I'm sure the others would yeah. also. Uh, what I've uh, seen, and I, I can't generalize to all, but what I've seen if, is a, if you have a patient advisory, patient and family advisory group, and it runs out of steam or it does, if people stop dropping off, I think that's a signal that, that of several things. One, it's a token group. They, not, they are not dealing with meaningful 
activities, and so people say this is not worth my time and effort. And secondly, um, they probably are not equipped, both uh, patient and family advisors as well as uh, administrators, as to how to best work together. It takes a very committed effort to say, how do we do this? And the thing that I always look at is what's the impact of having this group? One of the questions that I like to pose to people is why are you forming this advisory group and why are you asking people who have very busy lives, meaning patient and family activists and advisors, to come and join with you in what you're doing? If you can't answer that clearly, you're probably going to slip into tokenism. So I think there's some diagnostics and some ways up front, and it's asking that very simple question, why are we doing this, and what's the impact we expect to get out of it? Okay, good, solid questions. Uh, Bill Thatcher from Cautious Patient Foundation. Maybe uh, you feel free to uh, pick up on um, Barbara's point there, and I'm wondering, maybe you can also take a stab at another question here. Somebody's wondering whether a patient activist isn't too provocative and will immediately uh, put some of the folks you're hoping to reach on the defensive. Thoughts on well, that? I yeah. think that came up in discussion, actually. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, it, it's it's continuing in discussion. <laughs> um, we've been uh, having a conversation via email uh, following the event just around the question of naming. Um, patient activist, uh, patient advocate, uh, patient expert. What is it that you call um, this thing that accurately reflects uh, what it is that... Um, is embodied in the activity of this person um, or this attitude. And I think um, it's, I take the point that activist sounds like you're uh, agitating against something. Um, I don't think that there's a, a, a consensus yet. Um, one thing we know is, is that you know, no one really votes to be a a, a patient. I mean, no one likes to be a patient. Uh, it's not something that I sort of put on my on my bucket list. I want to be a patient at some point in time. Right, right. Um, um, however, most all of us experience it. And and part of the challenge that we have in a, in a, in a more national conversation is that, you know, I really think I'm going to live forever. I, I, I don't, um, it's hard for most of us to come to terms with, there is a termination point, um, and that it's important to be prepared for it. So um, people think it's going to be the other person. It's always somebody else. Right, Um, right. So for us, uh, I think the finding the ways to engage people in a way that that they will welcome uh, is an important part. And and certainly naming is a powerful thing to know how do we say it so that it it feels like, you know, I I am a, a person that is, is a champion for you or a champion for those uh, represented like you uh, coming into the healthcare system. Um, what do you call it? Um, is going to be an important part in, in, in just enabling people to ex- accept you into the room. Right. So to speak. Right. Well, I think. Bill, Charles Hill. Go ahead, Charles. Yep. One phrase that came up was a patient partner in care. When it comes to serving on those advisory bodies, having a job description, uh, and if they don't provide one, write your own and give it to them. Make it clear whether it's a voting or non-voting role. Uh, What are the competencies that I need to be effective and wherever possible being as or more prepared than the rest of the room at the table? Because we're really, we have to earn our spurs 
to have the privilege to be present for those deep dialogues and decision making. And getting paid, having patient advocates or patient partners at least being reimbursed for expenses because largely they're doing it on volunteer time. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I saw on the chat that Connie Davis uh, mentioned that in BC we use the term patient partner. Right. I see a lot of people are chatting in some ideas and feel free uh, to do so. Uh, let me ask you, uh, any any one of you, uh, what are there sort of some cautions here, pitfalls, uh, things that uh, everyone hopes to avoid, <laughs> particularly when folks are trying to come together in some fashion and sort of harness the best of what everybody has been working on? Uh, Tricia, any thoughts on that? Um, yeah, sure. I was actually also going to comment. I saw Go ahead. a yeah. comment from Kathy Clark yesterday, um, I mean, earlier on the chat, that, you know, having the term activist might put physicians on the defensive, and I I, um, I agree with that concern. You know, it seems to me that uh, somehow, you know, the words patient activist or even just patient and provider have somehow ended up on opposite sides of this dialogue that somehow, you know, the interests of the patient don't jibe with or might be even in opposition to the interests of the physician or the healthcare provider. You know, even the way we talked here today about the journey I've taken from physician to patient activist suggests that there is a, a distance between the two. Um, right. And maybe it's because of my background as a pediatrician. It's part of my job to look out for patients who can't speak from themselves. But I, I, I don't see, I don't see uh, those roles, the role of the patient and provider as being and the, in, those interests is being mutually exclusive. We right. we both want the same thing, right? Safe, effective, right. efficient, timely, patient-centered, and equitable care. So really, we're on the same journey and the same road. But we can all, and we can help each other get there, but only if we're willing to listen, you know, respectfully to each other. Mm-hmm. I think that's so something uh, something that embraces the sense of of the real partnership. Let me ask uh, each of you a question. If because uh, I, I there was somebody who maybe in some frustration said, speaking of the bottom line, <laughs> a lot of people want to know, you know, where's the beef? What are we doing now? Uh, d- d- you know, kind of don't don't know if they have the patience to see how things gel. And uh, there is a lot uh, a lot to do, and I can I appreciate the impatience as well. If you could wave some sort of magic wand and in some ways decide to work on a few things uh, across the board, no matter where everyone has come from or what was the genesis of your group. Is there, are there a few things that you all could imagine that might, in a year's time, you know, move the dial in some fashion? Um, and I hope that's not too you know, global a question. Um, Barbara, any thoughts on that? Well, very clearly, I would like every healthcare organization to make sure that they have active patient partners, patient activists, patient champions, you know, whatever the role that that does what uh, uh, really Tr- uh, Tricia was talking about, which is we're partners in trying to make this better. So if every organization could not just have one, but several, many uh, folks in that role partnering with them about the design, the improvement, the increased safety of their organization, we would change the conversation radically. It cuts having a patient uh, or several in the room when you're working on key activities rapidly changes the conversation. Okay. Um, uh, Charles or, or Tricia? Charles here. The, I have a vision, and that is that the next time every one of our listeners uh, goes in to see their physician, their care team, 
they get a patient diagnosis and treatment plan. And that what if there were a, a parallel workup that addressed patient beliefs, patient values, patient behaviors around health, and also the spiritual practices around healing that are important to that e- individual. And that we address prevention as well as wellness. That to have just the medical side without the human side, I guess it's like trying to play the piano with only one hand and expecting a two-hand melody. Mm-hmm. And that lastly, what I tolerate is what I promote, and it's what persists. Right. And so it's we can do better. Okay, okay. Uh, Tricia and or Bill, I mean, any sense of sort of some areas where uh, focus um, might really kind of move things forward, uh, the combined energy and efforts of, of everyone? Yeah, uh, this is Bill. I would say uh, one that came out during last week uh, was put forward by one of the participants, Pat Masters, um, about uh, engaging um, in a national advertising campaign, sort of a, a, a focus on, on actually bringing the whole topic of whether you call it patient-centered care or patient safety into the public arena so that there's more engagement and awareness. Right now, I'm not sure that if I say the word patient-centered care, I love the way you started the program, Madge, because mm-hmm. it is that what we have inside of us that defines what we mean by, by the words that we use. And, and whether it's patient safety or patient-centered care, I think they mean those two phrases mean a lot of different things to different people. Right. Um, and I think the an effort at, I was listening to one person involved in just the, the crafting of the healthcare bill and saying that this person was saying that they were in many of the rooms where patient-centered care was being talked about. And, and their perspective was that Nobody in the room knew what knew what it was. Yeah. So some real definitions, and and so everybody knows what what we're even talking about. Um, yep. Tricia, any sense from your conversations of sort of anything kind of coalescing coalescing in some, some sense, or what would be a, some good things to focus on right now? Um, I, I, nothing yeah. specifically. I mean, I just think that you know we we got off to a good start. We're still in our infancy in terms of trying to form a coalition and right. what we're going to um, uh, focus on, but there's certainly a great deal of talent and um, skills uh, in the group, and uh, I'd just like to see us um, you know, take advantage of that whole spectrum. Okay. All right. And I, I don't want to leave people without a sense. Uh, if they want to follow, I, we mentioned the Facebook page, and that's clearly a good place to sort of watch this space. Uh, anything else, uh, Bill or Barbara, for how people can stay involved and, you know, stay in the loop and see what evolves and see what they can contribute? Well, yes. Um, I just wanted to mention that there is, we just set up yesterday, so it's still warm. It's so so new. Um, a Wikispace page um, for the participants from last week as the starting group to begin to put in one place um, information about what they do as well as have some discussion pages on topics like naming um, and other things that that's publicly accessible in terms of people can can go online and, and see it and we're, we're setting it up so that everyone that was at last week's event can edit it so it's not being controlled by by just one entity and what shows up there and it's uh 
it's one of those sites like your uh, site for this program that doesn't require the www in front of it. It's just uh, the http colon two forward slashes, and then it's called wiki for now. That's w i k i for now dot cautious patient. And we have this listed on our resource document that everybody can find when they log off the program today. You'll find that on the archive page of the WIHI web pages for this program. You can also send us an email at info at IHI.org for that. Um, we may even be able to sort of uh, type that one in really quickly uh, before we get off. So the wiki will be uh, one place where everyone will find, uh, and certainly IHI. I, I think IHI and its staff and all those working on the forum and so many of the people at the event last week in Orlando were uh, dramatically affected by this summit and I, I think it's a, again a, a, me- a message of watch the space, space in terms of what happens next. Um, I think uh, as somebody said can't imagine the forum without patient activists uh, ever again and I think that's <laughs> nothing could be truer. Uh, lots of ideas on the table about patient leaders uh, being able to do be, play more of a role as faculty. So lots of, of thoughts and ideas on the table. I just want to quickly mention that IHI has an interesting program coming up that's germane, self-management and patient engagement, an opportunity to optimize outcomes. And that's a web in action that begins on February 16th in the new year. And there's information about that on our homepage. Uh, and I want to just, uh, I guess, a big shout out. I know everyone often wants the playbook, the blueprint, where to go, where to go next. I, I thank you all for sort of wandering in this area right now. Um, we are, in some sense, uh, kind of digesting, I think, some interesting linkages that have been made between people and ideas. And I hope uh, everyone who joined today can sort of join in that energy uh, that was created at the forum and be part of that. A big thank you to Trisha Pill, Charles McLean, Bill Thatcher, and uh, Barbara Balick, thanks to Linda Kenny and many others uh, who helped uh, sort of uh, clearly pull this event off, Jenna Ward as well, but also kind of helped me along in terms of pulling this program together. Next up on WIHI on January 13th, again in the new year, that's the power of specialty care, the necessity to use wisely with Neil Baker and Lawrence Shapiro. All that information is on our website right now where you can enroll if you'd like. A reminder, when you log off the program, you can download the chat, you can download slides, and if you have a moment, we'd very much appreciate your filling out a brief survey that pops up that helps us make this program better and better. Again, any questions. Questions, any confusion, uh, email info at IHI.org. The people who make WIHI possible are Mike Sweeney, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, Matt Morse, Vicki Minden. Again, uh, thanks to everybody, all my guests who really helped, uh, you know, the blocking and tackling with today's program. We have some music that opens and closes this program. Earlier you heard George Gershwin. Then we have some original arrangements by Aaron Flanders on guitar and Miguel Sapasoa on piano. It's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving patient care most of all for the institute for healthcare improvement thank you guests thank you participants i'm madge kaplan good day